Well, the headlines read like this, Iraqi forces attack, government facilities raided, and captives taken. The story goes on to relate that the captives were moved to a facility not all that far from Baghdad. And you say, I haven't heard anything about this. Well, that's because the news is old, real old. You have to go back 2,600 years to read this story. So, do that with me, will you please? Go back with me to the year 605 B.C. The Iraqis, or the Babylonians as they were known at the time, had laid siege to the city of Jerusalem and had taken captive the nobility of the palace. Those who were of royal birth and who probably thought they were immune to such tragedy were suddenly and deliberately removed from their royal posts and subjected to a journey, a treacherous journey, that as the crow flies would have been about 600 miles, but they certainly didn't take it straight. It probably was more like seven or 800 miles by the time they wound through the terrain. The destination? The city of Babylon. Not all that far from modern-day Baghdad. And what a city it was. At one time, the massive walls stretched 56 miles, enclosing some 200 square miles uh, of city. And you can see the pictures of, of relief from the walls of, that, of the excavations that, uh, that have been found. Uh, and it was filled with the finest state-of-the-art dwellings, teeming entertainment centers, thriving businesses, extravagant temples, and there is a, a bird's eye view, a satellite picture of, of at least part of the ancient city of Babylon and the river Euphrates next to it there. Uh, there were temples to numerous gods and goddesses and at least three different palaces, one of which was the famous Hanging Gardens, which was regarded as one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. That's an artist's rendering of what it must have looked like because of the descriptions that we've had. Uh, it was even considered at the time to be air-conditioned. Towering above the city was a 650-foot glistening enamel ziggurat reminiscent of the Tower of Babel from which Babylon and Babylonia derives its name. It may have actually been built on the foundation of or an extension of the original Tower of Babel that we read about in the book of Genesis. The tower itself was capped with a shrine which contained a massive table of solid gold and an ornate bed on which each night some Babylonian woman slept to await the pleasure of a visiting God. For all of the city's beauty, it was a place of great wickedness and sin. And it is to that city that Nebuchadnezzar took his Jewish captives, including a teenage boy by the name of Daniel whose story and whose book in the Old Testament is the basis of this next sermon series. And you say, okay, over the next few weeks, what are we supposed to gain from a look at the book of Daniel? Well, first of all, I want us to get to know Daniel the man. The book that bears his name is actually divided into two portions. There's the historic portion, and then there is the prophetic portion. And we're, we're going to confine our study uh, in, in this particular series to the historic portion of Daniel's life and experience. Of the men in the Old Testament, there are only two of which nothing bad is recorded. 
One of them was Joseph, who was sold by his brothers and spent his entire life in Egypt. And the other is Daniel, who was captured by his enemies and spent the rest of his life in Babylonia. Now, neither one of these guys were perfect. No no human being is, is perfect with the exception of Jesus Christ. But these two men, these two characters, perhaps more than any other, give us an, an, an image and reflect the life of Christ in the Old Testament best. One was born in a shepherding family. The other was born in a royal family. It's like bookends on culture. You took the lowest of the low, and then you took the highest of the high, and, and you bookend. And, and here's the ironic part about it. God used both the shepherd boy and the royal son equally, and both the shepherd boy and the royal son loved the Lord and were faithful to Him in faith and behavior um, equally. So I want you to get to know Daniel the man. Secondly, I want us to get to know Daniel the leader. God placed Daniel in some extraordinary opportunities and positions, and how Daniel handled those can be a lesson to all of us. Now, in the last several years of of the books I've read, one remains uh, a top favorite of mine. Uh, It's it's the book Team of Rivals, and those of you who have read it or listened to the book uh, know uh, that it details and chronicles the fact that President Lincoln took his rivals for the election of 1860 and and made a team out of that group which formed his cabinet. And, and And the whole book is basically a study in the art of getting along with difficult and powerful personalities. I would suggest it's a great book for anybody to read. If you, if you deal with difficult people in your job or, or you're, uh, in some aspect of society, read the book, and, and you'll gain a lot of insight from the way President Lincoln dealt with those who were among his cabinet. But I would also suggest to you that the story of Daniel is similar in many ways. A great leader, Daniel worked through difficult, even life-threatening situations with great skill and expertise. He dealt with difficult people and powerful personalities, and all of it he did so through his faith. And so I think we can profit from what we learned in Daniel. Yeah, I want you to get to know Daniel the leader. And, And thirdly, I want us to get to know Daniel the follower. There is so much to be gained from his example. His life and faith are role models for any generation. The spiritual principles, folks, that guided his decision-making as a follower of the one true God in a godless culture are as relevant today as they have ever been. Despite the fact that Daniel rose to prominence in the reigns of three different foreign kings, he remained first and foremost a follower of the Lord. In these challenging times... Learning the lesson of following Christ first and foremost is of utmost importance. Here then is how the book of Daniel opens. Daniel verse 1 of chapter 1. During the third year of King Jehoiakim's reign in Judah, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem and besieged it. The Lord gave him victory over King Jehoiakim of Judah and permitted him to take some of the sacred objects from the temple of God. So Nebuchadnezzar took them back to the land of Babylon and placed them in the treasury house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, his chief of staff, to bring to the palace some of the young men of Judah's royal family and other noble families who had been brought to Babylon as captives. Now, folks, the longer I live, the more I realize that human nature doesn't change from generation to generation. Can you for a minute just stop and and try to imagine all that happened to Daniel? 
um, he's, he's being taken away from everything he's known. I mean, he, he grew up in the palace. He grew up in Judah. He was a kid in the city of Jerusalem. He is now a teenager. I don't know if he's 15 or 16 or 17 years old when he gets deported, but all of his life has been spent here, and suddenly he is jerked out of that environment. We have no record in the book of Daniel that his family was deported with him. They may have been deported later, but there's nothing in the record to indicate that his family was along. I think it was he and other youth who served in the royal family in the palace that were taken out of the palace, and here they are on their way. The cream of the crop, and they're walking away from home. They're walking away from everything that is common to them. They're going to a land where they don't speak the language, where they don't believe the culture, where they don't believe the religion, and they are taken as captives. And you can see Daniel and these young men as they crane their necks, looking around to see the city of Jerusalem one more time, and then one more time. And, and the farther they walk, mile after mile, the city that is set on this hill begins to grow smaller and smaller smaller until it finally fades into the horizon and they see it no more because they none will ever come back to Judea, the land of their birth and their heritage. That's what's happening with Daniel. So what can we learn out of this story? Well, well let me give you some lessons that just jump out of these first few verses here. And here's the first one. Life can change without warning. Life can change without any kind of warning. Now, I don't know if you've ever played the game of life or not, but it, it's, a, it's a fun game, and it uh, chronicles a person's journey from early on to retirement, and it was produced in 1960 by the Milton Bradley uh, Company to commemorate the 100th anniversary of the company itself. Back in 1860, Milton Bradley's uh, printing business was about to go under when he printed 45,000 copies of this game called the Checkered Game of Life, and they sold like wildfire. In the midst of the Civil War, 45,000 copies sold like wildfire, and by, night, by 1868, uh, it was the largest game-producing company uh, in the United States uh, of America. And you know, with a spin of the wheel, you move on these different squares, and the squares tell you what to do and everything. And the game since 1960 has transitioned a little bit. 1992 was updated again to provide extra rewards for recycling your trash or learning CPR, or saying no to drugs. In the most recent edition, which took place in 2011, there's really no end, no official end, and, and values are up for grabs. You get as many points for scuba diving as you do for donating a kidney in the new game. The description on the website says, do whatever it takes to retire in style with the most wealth at the end of the game. I'm not sure that's the greatest value to shoot for or to dream for. The last time I played the game, which was quite a long time ago, when the game was over, I was $300,000 in debt. I do remember that. It was a miserable game. I landed on every devastating square you could land on in the game of life, and it just destroyed me. Uh, but about three-fourths of the way through the game, I wasn't looking for the retirement square. I was looking for the square that says, you can go home to heaven anytime. <laughs> that, I mean, it was just awful. And, and we finished the game, and, I, and, you know, and I'm thinking, that's life. Life is like things can change without warning. But in life, it's not pretend money and make-believe situations and the luck of the draw. It's real people, and it's real circumstances, and it's real joys, and it's real sorrows, and it's real hurts, and it's real changes. And how we make our decisions and choices in life impacts all the people who are in our scope of influence. And here's the thing you need to remember. God has a plan. 
But I got to tell you, there are moments when you and I have just no clue as to how God's plan is going to unfold. We know He's got us in His plans, but where we are and how it fits and how it's going to unfold, (laughs) I'm just clueless, aren't you? And then sometimes you can look back and see how God put all the pieces together. Well, to truly appreciate Daniel's situation, we need a little historical background here, okay? The year is 605 B.C., remember? Okay, that's when Daniel is taken captive to Babylon. Let's just go back five years earlier than that. Let's go back to 610 B.C. Josiah is king in Judah, and things couldn't be better. As a matter of fact, Josiah was the most spiritual, the most dynamic, the the, the greatest king since David in a line of somewhat mediocre kings, some better than others from the time of David. Nobody, nobody eclipsed Josiah. And Josiah has been on the throne now for several years and things are going great and the worship at the temple has been restored and the high places have been torn down where people were worshiping idols and it was the best of times in in, in the land of Judah and people were hopeful again and people were excited again and they were looking to the future. This is five years before Daniel leaves. The following year, 609, Josiah leads the Judean army into battle against the Egyptians, and he dies in battle. And the Judean army is defeated, and Jerusalem and Judah become a vassal state of Egypt. And Jehoiakim, Josiah's son, comes to the throne. And as good as Josiah had been, Jehoiakim is just that bad. He is just the antithesis of his father. How you can grow up in a spiritual environment like that and come out so unspiritual is just beyond me. And and yet, and yet I listen to parents who I know are godly parents who did their best to raise their family and, and maybe they've got three or four kids and out of the four kids, one of them has just gone off down a spiritual path that they just cannot understand or have abandoned the values that they so tried. And parents punish themselves over and over. What did I do wrong? What should I have said? How should I have done this? And parents, I want you to know, every child makes his own decisions at some point in time or another, and you can do the very best that you can, but you cannot guarantee that every one of your children will do what he or she should do and what's best. You don't ever stop praying for them. Don't ever stop encouraging them. Don't ever stop loving them. But just like Josiah, this great godly king, his son, just let go of everything that mattered. When that happens in your home, you just stay the course and keep praying. Well, Nebuchadnezzar then in 605 leads his Babylonian army against the Egyptian army and defeats the Egyptians at the Battle of Carchemish. And on the way back, he stops and lays siege to the city of Jerusalem because Jerusalem was a vassal state of Egypt. And it is at that point in time that he takes Daniel and the others captive into Babylon. Now, let me put some other Bible characters into context here. Uh, we, we read books kind of separately in the Bible, but you've got to know that all, all the time that this is going on, Jeremiah the prophet is preaching, okay? Jeremiah, 
The prophet, he's preaching during this time. The prophet Habakkuk, you ever read the the book of Habakkuk? Habakkuk is preaching during this time. And Jehoiakim despises Jeremiah. He just wants nothing to do with him. And so everything that Jeremiah says to Jehoiakim, he just kind of does the opposite. Had Jehoiakim listened to God's word through Jeremiah, history might be different. But because he was so rebellious against God, within 20 years of that first group going, the whole nation was destroyed. Jerusalem was destroyed. The temple was destroyed. And the whole nation had been deported to Babylon. Only a handful of people had been left to work the ground and to raise a harvest, the food of which they would then send to Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon. And Jeremiah stays with that handful that are left in the land. Daniel had known the highs and the lows. Daniel had lived through part of Josiah's reign. Daniel had known the hope and the expectation and the excitement of Josiah. He had known the lows of Jehoiakim, and now he was going to experience the lowest of the lows. He was being taken away from his home. He would never return again. This being the first Sunday of the new year, most of us are looking forward with plans and dreams. Some of you are planning weddings for the next few months. Some of you are expecting to graduate in the spring, either from high school or or college or graduate school. Some of you are excitedly awaiting uh, an upcoming birth of a child. Some of you are anticipating a move to a different house or a different city or a different state or even some of you back to a different country. Some of you will be celebrating a major anniversary this year in your life. Some of you are planning the trip of a lifetime that you've been waiting to do for for decades. And some of you are getting ready to retire and retool for the rest of your life. These are mile markers along the way, and we're always looking to the next goal. And we're always planning and preparing. And well, we should. God wants us to plan and prepare. Look at Proverbs 16.1. It says, we can make our own plans, but the Lord gives the right answer. And then in verse 3, it says, commit your actions to the Lord and your plans will succeed. And then in Proverbs 21, 5, it says, good planning and hard work lead to prosperity, but hasty shortcuts lead to poverty. And you can go on to other passages. God's Word encourages us to make plans, to, to prepare, to work ahead. Some of you here this morning, however, have found your plans and dreams and expectations downsized and relocated. Your family situation has changed, not the way you want it to. Your health has changed, and not the way you hoped. Your job has changed, and maybe you don't even have a job as a result. None of this was in your plans, but suddenly here you are. It's your new reality. Can I tell you this morning that Daniel would never have chosen to leave his home and family and nation and go work in the palace of a king that would later go back and destroy his nation and put to death many of the people that were there? Who in their right mind would do that? Daniel didn't choose that. But when that became his next and newest reality, Daniel was faced with some decisions he never imagined. And that happens to us as well. Without warning, when life changes, you may be faced with decisions you never imagined. Recent articles have noted the explosion of choices we face daily. Do you realize how many choices we face daily? Um, This survey in 2010 showed that the average American grocery store carried over 48,000 different items. That is five times more than the average supermarket sold in 1975. Five times more foods and items 
than in 1975. And I'm here to tell you what they sold in 1975 was a whale of a lot more than what they sold in the mid-60s when I was growing up as a kid. It is amazing. A Tropicana turns out more than 20 varieties of freshly pulped juice. For heaven's sakes, how many varieties of freshly pulped juice do we need from one company? 20 different varieties. Walmart and other big retailers provide a smorgasbord of over 100,000 different types of consumer goods. Netflix allows access to over 100,000 DVDs, and Amazon offers over 24 million book titles. Oh my goodness. The choices that we have. Have you thought about this? Coffee comes in tall, short, skinny, decaf, flavored, ice, spiced, and frappe. Jeans come flared, bootlegged, skinny, cropped, straight, low-rise, beach-rinsed, dark-washed, pre-washed, or distressed. I'm distressed reading that list about the jeans. <laughs> Moisturizer nourishes, uh, lifts, smooths, revitalizes, conditions, firms, refreshes, and rejuvenates. You can surf, chat, tweet, zap, or poke with your phone. Pictures and music can be viewed, recorded, downloaded, sent, and streamed all on your electronic devices. The, the, the number of choices that we face today is overwhelming. And, and the truth of the matter is, it is creating more, not less, stress. In a recent study, 42% reported lying awake at night trying to resolve the problem of the choices they had to make. 42%. And in his book, The Paradox of Choice, researcher Barry Schwartz claims, we have reached the point where choice no longer liberates, but debilitates, and it might even be said to tyrannize, end quote. Daniel was born of nobility, but never expected to be serving in the palace of an enemy. We don't know much about his life up to his teenage years. We simply know that he was fit for palace service because of his noble training. His deportation circumstances were not ideal. It was not the job he had prepared for. It was not the language that he knew. It was not the customs that he so celebrated. So Daniel had a choice to make. And it wasn't a confusing choice like the ones I've just gone through. This wasn't even a big multiple choice test. He just had to choose one of two things. When Daniel got to Babylon and he found himself in the service to Nebuchadnezzar, his choice was to do one of two things, and here it is. He could go over into a dark corner of the palace and spend his days crying over the fact that he was no longer in Jerusalem, that he would never be going back, and that he hated his new ter territory, and he didn't like anything about it, and woe is me, this is miserable. Or he could choose, okay, my plans didn't turn out the way I wanted to. I'm in a new place, new environment, new boss new language, new culture. I will do my best to make the most of my new reality. Those are his two choices. You either cry over what didn't happen or you create a new beginning based on the new reality. And I'm here to tell you, that's what you got to do when the tough times come into your life, just like Daniel. You, you can cry over all the things that didn't go right or the plans that didn't come to fruition or the, or the changes that took place that you weren't expecting, or you can say, okay, I can't do anything about that, but I can take where I am and who I am and what I've got and this new reality, and I can make the most of it. Daniel did. You can too. And you say, well, how do I make that choice? Well, here's the answer. Regardless of life's outcome, be faithful to God. When Jeremiah uh, re re remained in the land of Judah, he later wrote a letter to the exiles who were now in Babylon. 
And he sent it with two ambassadors to the king, and I suspect they may have delivered it to Daniel. I don't know, but that would have been a logical choice given Daniel's high position at that point in time. And in Jeremiah chapter 29, this letter written by the prophet of God to the captives in, in, in Babylon now went like this, beginning in verse 4. This is what the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of Israel, says to all the captives he has exiled to Babylon from Jerusalem. Build homes and plan to stay. Plant gardens and eat the food they uh, produce. Marry and have children. Then find spouses for them so that you may have many grandchildren. Multiply. Don't dwindle away. And work for the peace and the prosperity of the city where I sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it and for its welfare will, de- for its welfare will determine your welfare. This is what the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of Israel, says. Do not let your prophets and fortune tellers who are with you in the land of Babylon trick you. Do not listen to their dreams because they are telling you lies in my name. I have not sent them, says the Lord. This is what the Lord says. You will be in Babylon for 70 years, but then I will come and do for you all the good things I have promised, and I will bring you home again. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. They are plans for good and not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. Now, I know a lot of people who say Jeremiah 29 Verse 11 is their favorite verse. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. And and he goes on. But what we don't often realize is that that was written in a letter to people who were living in a place they didn't want to live and who found themselves as captives in a foreign land. And so here's the deal. God says, when when the bottom falls out of your life and when everything that you'd hoped for and dreamed for changes, this is what you do. Number one, make the most of your new circumstances. Settle down, plant a garden, raise a family, live life. Don't go into some dark corner or crawl into some hole and stop living. You need to do that when the bottom falls out. Pick up wherever you come out and live life to the fullest. Number two, work for the place Uh, where you are. Make it the best place you can. Pray for the place where you are living. In other words, if you find yourself living in Babylon, all right, be a model citizen in Babylon. Quit quit your whining and crying and and be a good citizen and and make this a good place to live. For, For us, it would be Bloomington. We ought to be model citizens of Bloomington. How we live and how we treat our neighbors and how we work in this community ought to, ought to make this place a better place. And if Bloomington is a better place, then we profit by that. We, our welfare is improved. As the city is better, our lives get better. And God says, you, you do that for Babylon. That's where you're living. Make it the best place possible because as it improves, your life improves. Pray about the situation is the third thing. Ask God to bless you and use you in these new circumstances. And the fourth thing is be faithful to God. Don't you get caught up in every new idea that comes along. God's plan will get you there. Don't you swap your allegiances. Don't you swap God's plan for some other plan. Whatever happens, you stay faithful to the Lord and let him work out his plan in your life. I've been reminded of that a lot of times through the years, but never more clearly than back in 1990. Back in the late 80s and and going into 1990, we were still down at the other building uh, on Winslow, and um, we had two and a half acres of ground down there, and so we had built on our 
paved every available piece of ground that we could, and we were doing everything we could with that facility, and yet we, we were stymied. And we knew that if God was going to keep working in our lives, we had to get to some place where we could continue to expand and grow, that God was bringing more people than what we had space for. And so uh, in 1990, this, this piece of property right over here, where, where the Kensington neighborhood is, is built now, came up for sale. And, oh, it was about 12 or 14 acres there, and, and it was perfect. Two and a half acres down the road, 14 acres here, great, it was perfect. And, and, and so there was, a, there was some miscommunication. I don't know what it was, it doesn't matter today, but uh, before we were able to talk about it as a church family, it sold to the developers of Kensington. And, and I, was, I was devastated. I was devastated because this wasn't the first time we'd lost out on something. Uh, b before that, I had tried to get property across the road down uh, at the Winslow uh, property, where the Winslow Farm uh, neighborhood is, is now, and, and that didn't work out either. And so this was the second door that seemed to be slammed in our face. And, and I remember praying, and I wasn't too happy when I prayed, okay? I didn't have too good of an attitude. It was more like, Lord, what are you up to? You know, don't you know how much we needed that? That was a perfect piece of ground. God, why, why would you let something like that happen? It was just a matter of days when this property came up for sale. 20 acres on this beautiful hilltop, easy in and easy out and not bounded in by fences and properties that maybe there was more that if we needed in the future we could buy and Today, we've got 40 acres up here. Suddenly, the, 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 the owners that already had a plan laid out, something happened in the company, and they had to sell, and we were ready, and it was the perfect place. And so 1990, we, as a congregation, bought the property with the idea that down the road, someday, we'll get there. The next year, 1991, the church building burned. It was destroyed but we had a place to start over. God had taken us to the hilltop and we'll be here as long as he wants us to be here. And I was reminded that in my impatience and in my lack of understanding and in what I think is the best idea, God's plan may be different. So stay faithful to him. Hold on to him. When the bottom falls out of your life, he's the only one that's going to get you through to get you started in your new reality, whatever that is. And the end result with God will always, always, always be better than the first.